Now, how does this care and affection unfold in your life? The first thing you do is to love them with all your heart. Now, the word heart comes from the Hebrew word lev. And the thing that we need to understand is that heart is way more than what it is in America. Even though in America it kind of is this way, but the Hebrews thought of the heart in four different ways. The first thing that the heart is is an organ that keeps you alive. It's a physical thing in your body that keeps you alive. So that when Naboth and 2 Samuel, who David was trying to extort him, Naboth later has a lev attack. Okay, His lev gives out on him and he dies. So his heart gave out on him and he died. So the word lev is used there of his heart that keeps him alive and it stopped working and he died. So the lev is the thing that keeps you alive. That's the first thing. That was duh. The second way that they view lev is the seed of all your emotions. So someone can be, so Naomi, when she comes back, her lev is bitter. Her lev is depressed. Or there's other times where the lev leaps with joy. The lev is joyful, it's excited. It's, and so it's the emotions. So it's all those emotions of despair, of anguish, of fear. It's the emotions of love and joy and hope and affection. And so that's the second way that word lev is used is the emotions. The third way the word lev is used is the mind, the thoughts. Because they had no concept of the brain in the ancient world. They really weren't cutting people open in the ancient world and dissecting them. That wouldn't come later until after the scientific revolution, that kind of stuff. Now, they could see people's hearts very much because hearts were a part of animal sacrifices. And as you saw the blood pumping out or somebody got killed there, they would notice that like, oh, if you got shot here, you didn't die. If you got shot here, you might not die. But you got shot here, you die that, with the arrow and that kind of stuff. So it didn't take much. But the brain is encased in the skull. There really is no purpose to kind of cut that thing open. And really, and, and once you cut it open, what are you going to figure out? And the heart kind of is obvious. You can see it beating and you can see blood flowing out and coming in. And you know from an animal sacrifice, blood's important. But you cut open our head and you see the brain, you're like, okay, what does that do? So they had no concept of the brain and the mind. And so for them, they thought that all your thoughts were in the heart. Because if the heart is what kept you alive, then the heart must also be where all the thoughts were. So for them, it is the mind. And so it's all your thoughts. It's all your dreams. It's all the decision-making that you have. This is why when you come to the Second Testament and they ask Jesus, what, are the two, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength. He doesn't say heart. Because by the time that we get to the Greek and Roman world, intellect is everything to the Greeks and the Romans. And so for them, the emotions are secondary. And the mind and the thoughts have trumped the emotional part of the heart. And they still, the Greeks still saw the heart as a seat of all thought. They still didn't fully understand the brain. 
But for them, the most important things were thoughts and intellect through Plato and Aristotle. And so that trumped everything. For the Hebrews, the most important things is life, feeling it, enjoying it, having a purpose. And so, but the same time as thoughts. So that's the third thing that the love, word love communicates. The fourth thing is your desires, the will, the thing that drives you. Intellectual thoughts and desires are completely separate from each other. Because intellectual thoughts is thinking, problem solving, um, figuring out life, wise decisions. But desires, that's I want, I want, I want, I want. Or what is driving me and motivating me to not give up in something or to pursue something. Now, that one we're kind of familiar with because even though we don't think of the heart in the third sense, the intellectual thinking, we do use the heart in the desire and will sense a lot because over and over again, what do you hear all the time in movies and TV shows and songs? Follow your heart. Just do it. Have it your way. Okay, over and over again, you're told to follow your heart, which is like, okay, a little side note here. <laughs> That's the worst thing you could ever do. It always drives me nuts like when people say that because the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man but leads to evil and destruction and death. And then Proverbs says the heart of all men are evil and wicked and lead to destruction and death. And Jeremiah 31, 31 says your hearts are so evil and wicked and hard that I'm going to one day give you new hearts. But that requires the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's how messed up your heart is. So the Bible over and over and over again says, do not ever follow your heart. That's the worst thing you could ever do. That's why when I was looking for Bibles, I don't know if I mentioned this, I was looking for Bibles for my seven-year-old Natasha for her birthday or Christmas. And we're going to get her first Bible. And I found this NIV Bible. And it literally had carved into the cover of the Bible, follow your heart. What makes it even more sickening, other than the fact that they completely ignored the entire message of the entire Bible, as they carved this into the Bible, but the first command of the Satanic Bible, written by Aleister Crowley in the 1930s, says, Do what thou wilt and follow your heart, for that shall be the whole of the law. Because Satan knows that if you follow your heart, you're automatically going to do what God doesn't want you to do. That's the only command in the entire Satanism, is just follow your heart, do whatever you want. And it was not until Aleister Crowley wrote that down in a satanic Bible, and 20 years later, a whole group of people grabbed that and read it and made that the mantra of the hippie movement and rock and roll that it started permeating America, and now it shows up in everything. We are used to the fact of following your heart, that we use the heart in that way. But what God is saying is that's to be given over to him. And so the first thing he tells you is, how do you love me in the caring, affectionate, devoted, loyal kind of a way? You give me everything that keeps you alive. You give me all of your emotions. You give me all of your thoughts, your intellect. You give me all of your desires. All of that is to be directed towards me. Directed towards me. So much so that the most ultimate act of devotion, 
will be later detailed out by Jesus when he says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. So he said, deny yourself, deny your desires, deny your dreams, deny your goals, and take your goals, take your desires, take your dreams, and crucify them, kill them on the cross, and follow me. Now, the American in us says, oh no. The human in us, no matter what time period of culture you're born in, says, but I have all these desires, all these dreams, all these goals, all these things I want to do. And they can't all be bad, right, God? Yeah, but they're still about us. Even your good desires is about you. It's not about God. It's what you want to do. And the idea is if you take up, if you lose your life to him, he will give you a greater life. The idea is if you crucify your desires, your goals, your wishes, your dreams, then he'll give you new dreams and new goals. And he might give you the same dreams back to you, except they'll be transformed now for the sake of the kingdom of God and not just for your own pleasure. Or he might give you newer and better ones. But the reality is you're called to deny yourself Pick up your cross and follow him. You crucify your thought life. You crucify your dreams and your desires and your goals. This is why you should never follow your heart. And then he proved it to you, demonstrated it to you, when he, in the garden, said, I don't want to die. But then he crucified his desires, and he gave his whole entire heart to God and love, And he died on the cross. And God did something way better with that than a Jesus who runs away and leaves us all wallowing in our sin and our death. And it benefited Jesus because he was raised from the dead and vindicated and placed in the right hand of God the Father. And then he told you that when you were to pray, you were to pray, praised be the name, the character of who God is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're told to pray every day that his will be done, not your will be done. And that's what he's saying. All this is rooted in Deuteronomy. All this goes back to Deuteronomy, the great Shema. What guides your affection? Your affection is not for your entertainment. Your affection is not supposed to be for your self-gratification. Your affection is not supposed to be for your job promotion, for your money, for your big house, for your whatever. Your affection is supposed to be for the things of God, His will. Now, is it wrong to be entertained? Is it wrong to have a job promotion? No. Does God want you to enjoy life? Yes. Will God maybe give that back to you and say, yeah, go and be entertained. Go on the yacht with your friends and have fun. You need it. Because if you don't relax, you're going to get so stressed out that you're not going to benefit me in any kind of way. God created the good world for us to enjoy and to have pleasure. But the problem is we put that pleasure and that affection above God. And in our motivation, we begin to work at work to make more money, to have more entertainment, not to further the kingdom of God, and then be entertained knowing that we need it and it's okay because God is giving it to us as a gift. Don't think God is stuffy 
and doesn't want you to be entertained, doesn't want you to have vacations, the question is, is that what you're pursuing all the time and your effort and energy and your thought life? Or is it something that you're enjoying because God is giving you as a gift because everything has been given to him? Now, what does that look like on a day-by-day basis for every single person? I don't know. And I can't answer that because I'm not God. And your life and my life is way too complicated for me to give you 10 principles to say when you become too selfish and when you are too much without God and legalistic. All I can say is that should be your prayer and you surrender that to the Holy Spirit and you allow the Holy Spirit to say, relax, enjoy my creation. This is why I created it for you, so that you would have every tree and every fruit of the garden. Or you've been sitting on the couch selfishly for far too long, doing what you want, pursuing your golf for far too long, pursuing your vacations for far too long. This is about my kingdom. And the Holy, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. The law can't do this. My 10 principles cannot do this for you. The only the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And if Jesus Christ died on the cross to give you the Holy Spirit, then allow that Holy Spirit to... I mean, as much as it would be awesome to read a book and get 10 principles, that's just taking you back to the law. But Jesus died on the cross so that you would have more than 10 principles. You have God himself speaking to you every second, telling you when you've gone way too far one way or the other. Does that make sense? And that's where prayer. So here's the reality. I can't give you 10 principles, 20 principles, 3 principles of what it means to love God with your heart. But I can say this is what he meant by loving God with your heart. Now take that and pray it and surrender it. And take that and allow that to maybe awaken more warning lights in your life. Does that make sense? So that is loving God. And the really important one here is the desire part. The desire one is the one that we have really allowed America to redefine what desire is. To really redefine. Almost every movie, every TV show anymore. Like anytime somebody says, Whatever you think is right, follow your heart. My wife and I immediately look at each other. And once you know that, you're going to start seeing it. Once somebody points it out to you, you start seeing it and hearing it and everything. In the TV shows like The 24, everything. That's my most favorite one. The president's like, I don't know what to do. And her, her husband comes up to her and says, whatever you think is right is the right decision. If that's the basis for my president making decisions over this country, no wonder we're doomed. That's not good. So that's heart. The next one is, and this is why so many translations might actually make it mine. The next one is soul. Now soul is the other one that has been misunderstood big time. This comes from a Hebrew word, nefesh. The soul does not refer to your immaterial being. In the Bible, the Hebrews had no concept of your physical body and your immaterial soul. For them, there were no two, two, there was no dichotomy. For them, the soul was your life. It was everything, your physical body, your emotional, mental, 
and social interactions. The soul was everything. And a lot of your Bibles will translate it, the word nephesh as soul sometimes, like in a command. But most of the time when you see the word nephesh being translated, to life. Okay, so when God says, I have given you life, he's saying, I'm giving you nephesh. Or look at that life over there. It'll say nephesh. Now, the idea that our soul and our body are separate from each other, that's a later Greek idea. That's Plato. Plato will later come along with the influence of many other Greek philosophers, but he's the guy that everybody listened to. And he began to say that the, the body was useless, it was a shell, this is not a real home, and ultimately the soul is divine, and the goal is to escape the body and go over it. Now, he wasn't the first to say it. He was just the first one to really make it popular and dominate everybody's thinking. And this is where we get the idea of the ghost in the shell or the ghost in the machine. And Leonardo da Vinci really believed this way because he tried to draw the soul. And this is where he did all his anatomy pictures. So he did all these pictures of anatomy, muscle tone, skull. And ultimately, he got down to the fact that all he was doing is drawing skulls because he couldn't find the soul. And so he was just drawing skulls. And he was trying to get deeper and deeper into the body, thinking that the body was not the soul, it was something different. And he couldn't find the soul, so it left him empty. And even when you read about him, him, his own writings, it's very depressing. So this idea that your body goes to the ground in one place and your soul goes somewhere else, and this, that's the real thing. That gets to be with God. And hallelujah, praise God the day that I'm dead and I'm with God. And that's the way we think and we talk. And the body's just there. And even funerals, when people are like, that's not grandpa, that's not your aunt. Yeah, it is. That was what was created by God. That's what God raised from the dead when he was Jesus. And that's what he's going to raise from the dead for you. And you're not considered completely saved in the Bible until your resurrection. Even Paul says without the resurrection, this is meaningless. There is no difference between your soul and your body. Now, is there some kind of a ripping that happens? Yes, but it was never meant to be that way. And the same, when you die, it's called a curse. It's called death, which means whatever immaterial part of you leaves your body and goes to heaven, there's a ripping apart that's happening. It's not like taking a backpack off. Oh, that's kind of relaxing, refreshing. There's a ripping happening. Now, is it awesome to be in the presence of God with no sin? Yes. But are you still lacking something? Yes, it's called your body. And that's why the second coming of Christ and the resurrection is the completion of everything. This idea that my body and my soul are separate things and life is going to be awesome when I leave this material realm and go to heaven, that's a Greek pagan way of thinking. The Bible never talks that way. In fact, the word nephesh doesn't even mean life or body or soul. It actually means throat. God is literally saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and throat. Now, why does he say that? Because the throat is where all life comes into your body to keep it alive. All your food and all your air. And without the throat, you would die. Everything that you need for life. And so, what does he mean? So when Joseph was taken, sold into slavery, they put a shackle around his nephesh, his throat. But God will later use that in a poetic sense, saying... You're to love the Lord your God with all your throat, meaning everything that comes into you and giving you life, your life, your life. 
And this is why some translations translate this, your whole being. And so the first thing you're to love God with is all your affection, all your emotions, all your desire, all your intellect. Now the second thing you're to love God with all is your entire life. Your bodily life, your mental life, your social life, everything. In fact, sometimes the Bible will say when somebody dies, it doesn't say that their nephesh, their soul, left the body and went somewhere else. It says to the dead body that's been sitting on the road for a week, there's a dead nephesh. So even in death, your body is still considered nephesh. So soul is not a good translation. That is a Greco-Roman pagan idea. What it really should be is life. And the whole sense of the thing. Spiritual life, immaterial life, physical life, social life, mental life, emotional life, energy life, food life, air life. Everything that keeps you alive everything that makes life worth living, everything that you can do with your life should be about loving God. All my emotional energy, all my social energy, all my mental, all my physical energy, it's all about loving God. That's nephesh. And then the third way is strength. Now, strength is a decent translation, but not the most accurate. This actually comes from a Hebrew word called or is it pronounced miod. And miod means very or much. So technically he's saying you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your life, and your muchness. What is miod? Miod is used of very. It means very or much. So in the garden, God created the creation. On the seventh day, he looked at all creation. And he said it is miod good. It is very good. And then it says in the flood that when the waters began to rise up and they became greater and greater, it says the waters became miod great, very great. And so it just means it emphasizes something, gives it a greater emphasis. Sometimes the Hebrew writer, if it really wants to emphasize something, we use an exclamation mark or italics, but the Hebrew writers would just say miod miod. Very, very. Much, much. That's how they would emphasize something. When it's being used here, it's used to emphasize something. But however, it's not modifying anything. It doesn't say you are to love the Lord your God with your miod. There's nothing after it. Which means it's kind of kicking back on the other two words. And it's saying that you are to love the Lord your God with all, very much of your heart. All of the heart, all of the, the life, everything. And so basically the fact that it's not modifying anything means that what it's saying is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your muchness, all of your everything, and all of your anything. Anything that is not covered in heart and life, you're to love God with all of it. But heart and life covers everything. So emphasize even more how much you're supposed to love God with everything. Meaning that literally everything about who you are and what you do should be completely and utterly and totally devoted 
to the pursuit of who God is in the kingdom of God. And that you trust him to give you whatever you need, whether it's relaxation, entertainment, vacations, satisfaction, contentment. That's God's to give to you. You don't use your heart and your everything and your soul, your life to pursue those things. You pursue God. And then you allow God to gift whatever he deems necessary to you. But because he's a good God who created this world for you, he will give it to you. And you don't have to feel guilty spending too much time doing things for your own sake because you know that God has said it's yours. Now, once again, how does that look like practically? I don't know. You just have to pray. And I know that the American in us is like, but I came here (laughs) to be told how to do it. (laughs) I am telling you how to do it. Because the Bible tells you that you came here to learn how to be completely dependent upon God in every single thing. And the minute we stop being dependent upon him and we start going to our 10-step principles, that's when we're automatically not loving God with all of our everything. Because now we're seeking some other answer for how this is supposed to be implemented rather than a total desperation of prayer and dependence upon God. Now, have I, am I doing that? No. <laughs> but I, am I know that that's what God meant? Yes. Because if you want ten principles, then let's just throw out the Second Testament and I'll put you back in the law. And Paul tells us the law just brought death. Can soul be confused with Holy Spirit? Yes. Spirit and soul are completely different. Because the word spirit is used of... The word spirit is a really hard one to define. Nobody really knows what it means, um, which I think is intentional. (laughs) But the word spirit can refer to the spirit of God, literally the Holy Spirit, which the First Testament doesn't even really define that much. And you don't even get really a better definition until the Second Testament, and even then it's very lacking. This is why it's so hard for us to do a study in the Spirit in this church right now as we're going through. It's hard to nail down what it is. But then the Spirit can also refer to just your excitement, your joy, that um, it says that they were high in spirit at the party. Um, so a Spirit can refer to just life. Yeah. So the word spirit is much harder to define. We don't really exactly know what the spirit. And probably a better way of thinking that when you die and your body goes in the grave and your spirit goes somewhere else, is spirit rather than soul. But even then, once again, the spirit is not the entirety of who you are. There's still a ripping, a rendering that's happening. And that's why it's called death. And that's why death is a curse and death is miserable and death is separation. If, if going to heaven, if your body dying going to heaven was so great, then it wouldn't be called a curse. It wouldn't be called death. We wouldn't fear it. So yeah. So this is why strength is a decent translation, because strength kind of then would refer to like all your resources, your energy, your time, all that everything else that your heart and your mind and your life are being guided and motivated and energized by. That's probably a good translation for just the lack of going from one language to another. 
But probably a better translation is your muchness or your everythingness. However, that requires a little bit more explanation when you're reading that to your kids because we're telling them that that's not grammatically correct and then the Bible uses it that way. This is what it means. This is the great Shema. That Yahweh is the only one that you're devoted to despite all the many other temptations and attractive things in the pinball machine of life. And that you're to give every single amount of your thought, your emotions, your desire, your physical life, your being, your social, mental, emotional, and all your energy, all your everything, and all of your anything to God completely. And he never, ever leaves room for anything else left for you. Except for the fact that he's a good God that will always give gifts. And that if you pray to God and say, I really need, I feel like I need to relax. I feel like I need to go on vacation. I feel like I need to just do something. Then if that is what you need, God will give it to you. And you can enjoy it without guilt. And if it is not, then he says, my word will sustain you. It's sufficient. And so when the disciples say, you need to eat Jesus, it's been days. And Jesus says, I don't need that right now because... I have food and bread that you do not know of. And when he's in the wilderness for 40 days, not eating, and everybody would say, after 40 days, you need to eat. He doesn't need to eat because he's praying with God. Now, that doesn't mean that's how you're supposed to live life. Those are exceptions. But there were times that Jesus was doing ministry, but he needed to get away, and he left everybody, no matter how needy they were, And he walked away without feeling guilty that he was walking away from ministry. He said no to the needs, and he went off and he relaxed and he prayed and he slept. And that's important, too, that Jesus demonstrated both a need to serve God and a need to relax and get away from everything. But it always says that he was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit to the baptism. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit to the people. When he saw the people in need, he took care of them. He was led by the Spirit to go away and relax and pray and sleep. He was led by the Spirit to sleep in the bottom of the boat when everything was going to hell in a handbasket. He was led by the Spirit. And the Spirit told him when it was okay to feed himself and when it was time to feed other people. But he did it perfectly because he loved God with everything and all of his muchness. And that's our example. And that even when he says, I don't want to die, he's still willing to say, I will die. Even when you're saying, I don't have enough energy to go to another ministry night. And God says, but you have to, because there's a real need that only you can meet there that night. But don't worry, I'll take care of you the next day, and I'll get you through this day. And only he can tell you. I can give you all my wisdom, but it's just all my guessing. But in that moment, only God can tell you. Now, can God speak through us in those moments to help you hear what the Holy Spirit is saying? Yes. But you should always be going in prayer and saying, should I listen to this? Is this where I'm supposed to be? This is the great Shema. This is the great Shema. Any questions, comments? Yeah. But even in that Jewish context, they've beaten the one God so much, yet at the same time, so many of them have no real relationship with God. 
And it's like, I can beat that drum all I want that I have one wife, one wife, one wife, one wife. I will not have an affair. I will not have an affair. Yet you might look at my marriage and say, but there's no affection or love for your wife. Yeah, you're devoted. Yeah, she's the only, she's one. But where's your relationship? And so I think like the, the Ten Commandments have beaten the there's only one God. But I think here what he's really focusing is on love, love, love. And that the love is modifying God, it's modifying heart, it's modifying the muchness, it's modifying this life. And I think, yes, there's this idea of monotheism in a technical sense. Yes, they can communicate the plurality of Trinity. But their main heart, the way he's trying to get by, is an affectionate devotion to me and me alone. Because that, if you get that down, then everything else will fall into place. If I am devoted affectionately to him and him alone, then he will be one God to me. And if I do that, then I will understand when the Trinity comes along, not when it comes along that, it, that it's never existed, but when the idea is finally developed, I'll embrace that because I'm already in love with that God. So when he comes along and reveals two more members, I'll recognize them because I already love them. But if you, but if you focus on the oneness, that he's the only God in a technical sense, like a lot of Jews do, then you can miss the love. You can miss when Jesus and the Holy Spirit show up and who they are. And that's why I think, like, once again, a lot of times when I come to these questions of, like, which one is it, a lot of times I choose to err on the side of less consequences or fewer consequences. And where will the domino go when I knock it down? And when I focus on the technical oneness, I can fail in the other areas. If I focus on the affection and the only devotion to him, then I automatically succeed in the other areas.